Well, it's great to be here. I don't know how many of you came up and shared with me yesterday that you were so thankful that I talked to the, your spouse. Uh, I, I, several of you husbands said thank you for, for sharing to my, for, with my wife that she's the problem. You didn't get the point. And uh, so I want to help you uh, this morning as well. You know, it's hard to face our realities. It's hard to face the fact that we, and, and, and Satan doesn't want us to get real with the fact that we've got problems that we need to deal with. Uh, I have, a, I have, as I said yesterday, 19 grandchildren. One of my grandchildren's name is Lincoln. He is now nine years old. But when he was about five years old, I was uh, sitting in my living room with uh, Lincoln, uh, or actually I was talking to Lincoln's mom and dad, and they were... Uh, they were sitting over to my left. We have a sort of a corner group, and they were sitting to my left. And my grandchildren, about seven or eight of my grandchildren, were sitting, were out in the dining room to my right, and they were playing. And I'm just sitting there, and my, 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 my grandson Lincoln comes running in. He said, Grandpa, can I ask you a question? And I thought, I'm always willing to share my wisdom with uh, the younger generation. And, and so he came up. I said, what, what's the question? He said, Grandpa... He said, why are you so fat? <laughs> well, upon saying that, his mom and dad started getting up. I said, no, no, you stay right there, right, right there. I, I can take care of this. I said, come here. And I pulled him up close to me. I said, you know what's going to happen to you when you get older? I said, as you get older, you're going to get big and you're going to get fat. You're going to get so fat, people are going to look at you and they're going to point at you and they're going to say, hey, fatso, you're going to get big and fat. And he said, why do you say that? I said, because the Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And since you called me fat, other people are going to call you fat. What do you think about that? He looked up at me and said, can I ask another question? I said, what's that? He said, who did you call fat? So we all have problems, things we need to deal with. I was looking on the, I was looking on the internet the other day, and I, 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 I learned something. On the internet, they said, there are three things that the American public find very, very difficult to say. Number one is, I'm sorry. Number two, I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And number three is Worcestershire sauce. It's very hard to say. We, 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 it's hard for us to face the, the uh, things that we need to face in life. And we're going to talk today about things that I think are very, very important. We're going to talk about what the Bible says about being a kingdom husband. And then we're going to talk about being a kingdom wife and what God's word uh, says about that. We're going to be in a passage in Ephesians chapter 5 in just a few minutes. But before we get into that, I want to read to you something that I read in a book by James Dobson many, many years ago. In fact, it was back in 1982. He told the story of a woman that came into his office, and this is what she said. She said, John and I were deeply in love when we got married. We struggled during the first two or three years, especially with financial problems, but I knew he loved me, and I knew I loved him. But then something began to change. I'm not sure how to describe it. He received a promotion about five years ago, and that required him to work longer hours. We needed the money, so we didn't mind the extra time he was putting in. But it never stopped. Now he comes home late every evening. He's so tired, I can actually hear his feet dragging as he approaches the porch. I look forward to him coming home all day because I have so much to tell him, but he doesn't feel much like talking. So I fix his dinner and he eats it alone. I usually eat with the kids earlier in the evening. After dinner, John makes a few phone calls and works at his desk. Frankly, I like for him to talk on the telephone so I can hear his voice. Then he watches television for a couple of hours and then goes to bed. Except on Tuesday nights, he plays basketball, and sometimes he has a meeting at the office. Every Saturday morning, he's, he plays golf with three of his friends. Then on Sunday, we are in church most of the day. Believe me, there are times when we go for a month or two without having a real 
in-depth conversation. You know what I mean? And I get so lonely in the house with three kids crawling all over me. There aren't even any women in our neighborhood I can talk to because most of them are gone back to work. But there's other irritations about John. He rarely, rarely takes me out to dinner. He forgot our anniversary last month, and I honestly can't believe he's ever had a romantic thought. He wouldn't know a rose from a carnation, and his Christmas cards are signed just John. There's no closeness or warmth between us, and yet he expects me to become passionate and responsive to him. I tell you, I can't do it. Sure, I go along with my duties as a wife, but I sure don't get anything out of it. And after the two-minute trip is over and John's asleep, I lie there resenting him and feeling like a cheap prostitute. Can you believe that? I feel like nobody loves me. I'm a lousy mother and a terrible wife. Sometimes I think that God probably doesn't love me either. Well, now I better tell you what's going on between John and I more recently. We've been arguing a lot, and I mean really fighting. It's the only way I can get his attention, I guess. He has an incredible, we had an incredible battle last week in front of the kids. It was awful. There were tears, screaming, insults, everything. I spent two days at my mother's house. Now all I can think about is getting a divorce so I can escape. John doesn't love me anyway, so what's the difference? I guess that's why I came to see you. I want to know if I'll be doing the right thing to call it quits. Man, the question that comes to my mind is, how do you avoid a situation like that? Because the truth of the matter is, it's, it's replayed over and over and over and over again in our culture and in our Christian culture. How do you as a husband keep the honey in the honeymoon? How do you continue to be the prince that's sweeping her off her feet? How do you continue to show the love that God wants you to show to your wife? In Ephesians, Paul addresses this issue. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. He says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church. And he gave himself for it that he might sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives even as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. No man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Father, in the next few minutes, I pray you'll help me to communicate to your people the truths from this passage of Scripture, what you teach us as husbands about loving our wives properly. Father, help us to take your truth and help us to, to, to yield ourselves to it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are several basic things in this passage that, that God gives us concerning the husband's relationship to his wife. Now, I want to tell you this, for both this session and the next session, these, this message is not politically correct. Hillary would not approve of this, neither would Nancy, uh, nor would many of the political advocates in our culture today. But this is what the Bible says. There's a difference between what a kingdom husband should be and the rest of the world. So what does the Bible say? First of all, I want you to see this, that a husband should love his wife unconditionally. He should love his wife unconditionally. The word love here is the word agape. It means unconditional love. There's several words for the word love uh, in the Bible, but the, 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 several Greek words 
This one particularly means unconditional love. It means no matter how she treats me, I'm going to love her. I'm going to do what's best for her. No matter how she treats you, you should treat her the way God wants you to treat her. You should be concerned about her needs. There's been times in church history, all the way through church history, where the church as a whole has shown no respect for Christ. In fact, walked away from his teachings. There have been times in church history where the church was disobedient to Christ. In fact, you as a Christian, when you got saved, there were things that you've done that have not been honoring to Christ. You've walked in disobedience. There's the, Bi the Bible teaches us, in fact, that the church is selfish. We're selfish. You say, what do you mean by that? The Bible says this about our love, and God knows this about our love. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 19, the Bible says we love him. Here's why we love him, because he first loved us. Our love is a selfish love, and he knows it. He knows that we love him because he suffered and died and paid for our sins. He was buried and rose from the dead for us. He did all of that for us. And we come to the realization that he did all of that for us, that if it wasn't for him, we'd be going to hell. If it wasn't for him, there was, there's no way we would get to heaven. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't even have life, and we wouldn't know what life is all about. Everything is all about him, and when we realize that, we return love to him because he first loved us. So it's a selfish love that we have. In fact, when I'm talking to the Lord, oftentimes I say to him, Lord, you know that I love you. I love you, Lord Jesus. I love you, Heavenly Father. I love you, Holy Spirit. And I confess to you it's a selfish love. I love you because you first loved me. And that's the truth of the matter. He knows that. And yet, none of this curtails his love. None of this stops him from loving us. He loves us unconditionally. In fact, he pursues us. He pursues us. He comes after us. He says to us, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He left heaven, came to where we were. He pursues us, and we ought to pursue our wives. We ought to pursue their love. We ought to go after their love. What do we do? Pre-marriage. Pre-marriage, we did everything we could to impress our spouse. Did everything we could to get her attention. We bought flowers. Um, you say, well, I never did. Uh, well, you should have. Um, bought flowers. You said, uh, you, man, she'll like this. I can remember when I was in college, uh, it, we, I, I had to work my way through college. I, had, we, uh, we, I was a dishwasher early in the morning. In fact, that's where my wife spotted me washing dishes, and she said, that would be a good guy to marry. And uh, so uh, I, I, I worked my way through college washing dishes. I had very little money. Uh, my dad had died when I was very young, and we just didn't have money. And uh, in fact, only went to, during the four years I was in college, I went home twice uh, because we couldn't afford the trip back to Las Vegas. Uh, uh, at that time, you could buy a rose, a single rose for $1.50. Or I'm sorry, a dollar, you could buy it. And, and, so that, and that, that would be a gift you could give to your girlfriend. But for $2.50, you could get a glass vase with a rose in it and baby breath. I never even knew what baby breath was. And the, but uh, then you, they, you put that in there and that little white flowery stuff around there. And then they would put a ribbon around it and then they would hang a card from it. And then you could put things like on there, I love you, David. And, uh, and you could put that on there. And, and I, I thought, man, I'm going to get that $2.50 and I'm going to buy that. And I went uh, and I got that, that vase and that flower. I went to one of her roommates. Now, the, uh, I went to Liberty University, but that was before it was Liberty University. It was called Lynchburg Baptist College when we got there, and then they changed it to Liberty <laughs> Baptist College. We didn't have any fancy dorms. We lived in, uh, like, army bunk houses. And uh, it's like, like I was in a room with, like, 24 guys in a bunk that was uh, in a bunkhouse that was open, and th there was the guys' dorms on this one side of this island we lived on called Treasure Island. Then there was a football field, and then the girls' dorms were on the other side of the football field. But they had the same kind of army bunks that we had. So I knew she had several roommates, and I gave, her, I gave one of the, her roommates this flower, and, uh, and she took it and put it on the front porch of that, uh, of that dorm. Now, my wife is very unassuming, so when she 
walked up and saw that, I knew what she would do. She would walk up, see that flower, and walk by it and think, oh, somebody got a flower. But definitely wasn't her, but somebody got a flower. But I knew all of, also, I knew her roommates. I knew her roommates would say, who, is, who got the flowers? And they would look so they would all know that it was from me. And so uh, she, she went uh, to her dorm that evening and she saw it out there just like I thought, walked by it and went inside. And they'd say, did you see the flower? Did you see the flower? And they, she said, yeah, who's they, who are they for? And they, and they said, that's from Dave. And, and she went and she read it and it said, from, from uh, I, I love you, Dave. And she said, oh, what a hunk, what a guy. And, uh, and I knew that she would do that. And you say, why did you buy her flowers? Because I wanted to impress her. That's what we do before we get married. Before we get married, we take them on dates. Uh, I can remember the first date I took my wife to was Hardy's Hamburgers. And uh, uh, we, 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 I took her on dates. You did that before you got married. Before you got married, you patiently waited for her. Remember those days when you patiently waited? Oh, it's going to take me a little while. It's okay. If it's worth having, it's worth waiting for. It's okay. Take all the time you need. Do you remember that? Not in the car going honk, honk. You patiently waited for her. Remember those times? Remember how you used to open the door for her? When you got in the car, you went and opened the door for her to let her know that she was, she was special to you. I, I, uh, was, I took my wife to a mall one day, and we were inside the mall. We were shopping, and we left it came outside, we came outside, I went to, the, uh, went to the door, I opened the car door for her and she got in and I shut the door and, and I came home. Uh, that uh, next Sunday, a lady came up and said, preacher, I saw you and your wife at the mall the other day. And I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, you know what I did? I said, what? She said, I followed you. I wanted to see if you really do what you say. She said, I followed you and I walked outside and she said, I watched you and you went and you actually opened the car door for your wife and she got in. She said, it was just wonderful. I thought, man, she caught me on a good day. <laughs> I was so glad. Uh, but before we got married, we do those things. Before we got married, we did this. This is something we did before we got married. Every time we saw uh, every time you saw her, you showered. Remember that? Uh, and you put on cologne so you could smell good for her. You, don't, you remember that? Remember you treated her parents with respect? Remember you, you, you went there, and I, I can remember this. Her mother really wasn't too excited about the fact. But I understand my, my wife grew up in western Pennsylvania and very close to the Amish community. In fact, I used to call her my Amish girlfriend. She was uh, very, very conservative, very, very uh, solid Christian uh, background. Her mother was just a solid Christian, really loved the Lord, could quote half the Bible. And, uh, and then she writes, she, she sent her to a Christian college where she's going to meet, you know, a fine Christian young man. And she writes back to her mother and she says, Mom, I met this wonderful guy. He's from Las Vegas, Nevada. His dad died when he was 10 years old and he didn't, uh, he, he sort of raised himself. Had a motorcycle when he was 14 years old and he drove all over Las Vegas. Uh, can you imagine being the mother that receives that note uh, from your Amish daughter? Uh, and I mean, she really wasn't Amish, but I mean, that's very, very conservative. And uh, so her mother was very, very uh, cautious about me. So I had, did everything I could to impress her with how spiritual I was all the time. Um, one of the breaks that we had was between our junior and uh, our sophomore and our junior year. Uh, I, w I was working in a, in a uh, church in North Carolina over the summer, and uh, I had a break, and the, one of the people in the church uh, offered to fly me up to Pennsylvania to see Anna at the end of the summer. And so they flew me up there, and I was, I was going to be there for a week. Well, I looked at their house. Their house hadn't been painted for like 35 years, and I said to the, her mother, would, I said, you know, I noticed the house hasn't been painted. Would, would you be interested in me painting your house for you? And I thought she'd say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. But she said, yes, that would be great. I hate painting. It's one thing I hate worse than painting, a stick in your eye. But other than that, I, would, I, I hate painting. And, and, but, but I did that. I, I spent the week there with, with, my, with my future wife, hopefully. 
and I painted the entire house just to impress her mother. Uh, we, we, do, we do what we can. To, 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 we treated their parents with respect. Remember, we would travel to see her. Just do whatever you need to to see her, just to be with her for a while. I said to my, my, my mother was raised in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which is 80 miles away from Brookville, Pennsylvania, which is where Anna lives. So over uh, like Christmas breaks and Thanksgiving breaks, I would go from uh, Lynchburg and I would go to Altoona, Pennsylvania because I could get there. People would drop me off I'd, I, and get rides uh, from them. And, uh, and then, uh, but Anna was 80 miles away. One Thanksgiving, uh, I, I was there at my uncle and aunt's house. Now my uncle was a... Um, drill instructor, uh, uh, Air Force, uh, no, I'm sorry, in the Army during World War II. He was just a, like a tough old bird, right? So uh, he, uh, I, and, and he hitchhiked all across the, the country, uh, just getting back and forth when, from different Army bases to go to get to Altoona. So I'm up there, and I'm thinking, you know, I really, it's only 80 miles to where Annie is. I'd like to see her. I just... Just, I want to see her for a little while. It's, I've got about, I got a couple of days. We're not doing anything, and I thought, uh, I thought maybe if I hint around to my uncle, he'll drive us up. It's only like an hour and a half, two hours to get up there, so maybe he'll drive us up. He'll drive me up if I hint around. So I thought, here's my hint. My hint is, hey, uh, Uncle Bob, uh, you know Anna is only like 80 miles away, and he said, yeah. He said, be good to see her, wouldn't it? And I said, yeah. He, I said, uh, I said. I was thinking about hitchhiking, and I thought for sure if I say I'm going to hitchhike up there, he'll say, oh, no, we'll just drive you up. You know, i got two good cars here. We'll drive you up. So I said, I'm, I'm just thinking about hitchhiking up there. What do you think? He said, that's a good idea. Why don't you do that? you got a couple of days. Just go ahead and hitchhike up there. You can probably get up there and back in a day. And I, I thought, great. So now I've stuck my foot in it. So I, so I hitchhiked up there, 80 miles. I hitchhiked up there. And I hitchhiked up there for one reason. I just want to see her. And when I get up there, I'm only going to have a couple of hours. Then it's going to get dark. And I got to hitchhike back because this is in the middle of winter. This is, this is November. And so I get up there. I see her. And I got ride after ride going up. On the way back, I'm thinking, man, it's going to start getting dark. And I start hitchhiking back. You know what? People don't pick you up at night. Uh, they're, they're, not, they're afraid of picking you up. You look like the dangerous guy. Uh, they're not worried about who's in the car. Uh, and, and so I got, it took me a lot longer to get back uh, than it took me to get up there. But you said, why did you do that? Because I wanted her to know that I loved her. And I wanted to be with her. You'd travel to see her. You would spend hours just talking. Remember that? You just talked. Just talked. And, 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 uh, and you liked listening to her, and she knew you liked listening to what she had to say, and she pretended to like what you had to say as well. All of that took place before your marriage. But after marriage, what happens? The guy that used to buy flowers, he doesn't even pick flowers now. He doesn't even know the difference, as she said, between a carnation and a rose. And then we take them for granted that they're always going to be there. And the sad thing is, in our culture, they're not. Look, here's the deal. Husbands, you're supposed to love your wife unconditionally. No matter how she treats you, you're supposed to pursue her and love her the way Christ loved the church. Number two, it says in this passage that a husband should sanctify his wife. The word sanctify is an interesting Bible word. It means to set apart. It means that your wife should feel like she is number one. She's more important than anyone else in the world. Your wife should feel very, very special. Like she is more important to you than anyone in the world. Uh, I had a phone call just right after our church. Our church is about a year and a half old. And there was a couple that had just gotten married. They had married about six or eight months. And um, I get a phone call. This guy says, preacher, you got to come over here. I said, what's up? He said, would you pl please bring your wife over here? You need to come and talk to my wife. You need to straighten her out. That's always a bad sign. Preacher, come over here and straighten out my wife. So I get to his house, and he has the living room set up. 
he has it set up to where there's a chair here and a chair here and then a coffee table in between and a love seat on the, on the other side of the table. He sits me and my wife in the love seat. His wife sits in one chair. I sit in another chair and she's weeping. And uh, I said, what's, what's the problem? She said, he loves his dad and his brothers more than he loves me. And I said, I, and, and, she, and he said, I do not, I, 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 no, that's not what he said. He said, he said would, you, would you stop that? And I said, what is the problem? He said, preacher, it's hunting season. I said, okay, it's hunting season. He said, I can't remember, he said, I can't remember a time in my life. He said, before, he said, before I can remember, every October, I went hunting with my, with my dad and my brother. That's what we've always done. I said, well, that's great. That's good. He said, he said, yeah. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, she wants to go with us. I said, I said, oh. He said, he said, we've always done this. This is what we've always done. And so she said, I said, I don't want you to go with us. And she said, you love my brother, your brother and my, your father more than me. And so I said to her, of course I do. I said, what? He said, I said, of course I do. I've known them all of my life. I've only known you for two years. And he thought that made perfect sense. She said, he loves them, she, he loves them more than me. And I said, I said um, his name was Bud. I said, Bud. He said, let me explain to you what the Bible says. I said, first of all, let me say this. That's a wonderful thing that your wife wants to get involved in something you love. She wants to be involved in your life, and that's a wonderful thing. As soon as I said that, his face began to drop. But then I said to him, I said, I said Bud, the Bible says that when a man gets married, he's to leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And, and your wife should feel like she's more important to you than your husband, than your, or I'm sorry, than your father, your mother, your brothers, anybody else in the world. The most important person in the world to you should be your wife. At that point, Bud had this look in his face like, I can't believe you just betrayed every man in the universe. Uh, he, I mean, it was like this look like, how can you be saying these horrible things in the presence of my wife? The Bible tells us this, that, we're, that our wives should feel like they're more important than anyone. In fact, the Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. It says, likewise, you husbands dwell with them according to knowledge giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. The word honor, when it says honor given to the weaker vessel, it indicates protection of a precious, delicate treasure. Your wife should feel like as though she is set on a pedestal. In my house, if you were, if you were walking to my house, the first place you'd go is in the dining room. You go into the dining room, and we got uh, a dining table there, and there's a china hutch. A china hutch is a like glass hutch. It's over to the right, and it's filled with very, very precious glasses, crystal, that kind of thing. It's the stuff that I never get to touch. Do you understand that? It's the stuff that my grandchildren will have because I will never have touched it. it it's breakable. It's precious. It's put up in a place. There's, if you go over uh, above the stove, there's a cabinet there with all the plastic stuff. That's the stuff I get to touch. That's because that's not so precious. That can be dropped on the floor and anything. But the stuff up here is precious. It's protected. It's taken care of. That's the idea of the weaker vessel. God says you should treat your wife as though she's a special, protected vessel and that you're more concerned about her than anyone else in the world. She should feel that way. She should experience that from you by the way you respond to her and to her needs. A husband, number one, should love his wife unconditionally. Number two, he should sanctify his wife set her apart, make her feel like she is number one. Number three, a husband should protect his wife's purity. 
A husband should protect his wife's purity. The Bible tells us this in this passage, that Jesus washes us and cleanses us. Now, what I'm going to say is going to, I'm going to say very delicately because there's children in the auditorium, but I want you to catch what I'm saying. Uh, Jesus would never ask us to do anything <laughs> that would make us feel dirty or unclean. Back in the 1990s, we had a president named Bill Clinton who did some very inappropriate things in the White House. And from that time on, I've had men... Uh, and uh, uh, I've had couples in our, in our church that have asked us what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate in the physical relationship between a husband and wife. I've come to the conclusion based on this passage of scripture that this is what we should, we should understand. We're, if we're to love our wives the way Christ loved the church, that a husband should never do anything to make his wife feel dirty or unclean. The, the natural and normal physical relationship in a, marriage, in a marriage should never be esteemed as unclean or dirty. It's a, it's a wonderful expression of love between a man and a woman. In fact, the Bible says the marriage bed is honorable in all things. Hebrews 13 and verse 4 says marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. What I'm saying is this. There should never be anything done between a husband and wife that would make the wife feel demeaned or dirty or unclean. That's a very simple thing. The normal relationship should be honored in every way. The Bible tells us this, and, and, and this is something that's very, very important, that the marriage bed is for the husband and the wife alone, which excludes any other person in any way. And it says very specifically the pornography of any type would be totally out. I had a Christian counselor, a, a, a couple that said to us that a Christian counselor told them that since he was addicted to pornography, that, that she should view it with him. If he was gonna watch it, she should view it with him. And I said, that's the worst advice I've ever heard ever anybody give any, any, to anybody. I said, here's what God's word says. God's word says, and, and catch this, men. God's word says that if a man commits adultery in Proverbs chapter 6, he says if a man commits adultery, he, has, he is destroying his own soul. Now, understand what your soul is. Your soul is your mind, your ability to think right. Your, 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 your soul is your emotions, your ability to show proper emotional response. And your soul is your will. It's your mind, emotion, or will. Your will is the ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. If, uh, and God says if you commit adultery, you're destroying your own soul. You're destroying your ability to think right, your ability to emote right, your ability to make wise choices, your ability to say yes to the right thing and no to the wrong thing. So important. That's your soul. You're destroying that if you get involved in adultery. You say, well, we're not talking about adultery. You're talking about pornography. Jesus said this about pornography. He said, if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he has already committed adultery in his heart. It's just another name for the soul. He's saying that you're going directly to the soul. Pornography is a scourge on our nation, and it's destroying marriages, and it's destroying families. It's the number one by billions of dollars uh, industry on the Internet. And why does Satan want that out there? To destroy the souls of men and women. It destroys your ability to think right. It destroys your ability to emote right. It de destroys your ability to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Pornography is a horrible thing. It should be out of your home totally and completely. It should never be invited into your bedroom. Understand you're destroying your soul. And if you're involved in it, get out of it. You say, how do you do that? You confess it as sin to God. 
You determine you're going to forsake it. The Bible says, he that, can, that covers his sin will not prosper, but whoso confesseth, that's saying, God, I believe it's wrong, I admit that it's wrong, and then forsakes it, I'm going to do everything I can to stay away from it. The Bible says if you do that, you'll have mercy. God will give you mercy and help you overcome it. Then I tell you this, get, find somebody that you can be accountable to because the temptation will come over and over and over. The Bible says if you think you're, you stand, you better take heed lest you fall. And then it goes on to say, no temptation has taken you but such as is common to man. But God's faithful who will with the temptation make a way of escape. Find somebody you can be accountable to that'll help you and that, that help you stay away from that horrible thing that's destroying your soul and will destroy your family and your marriage. So the Bible tells us very simply that, that a husband should love his wife unconditionally, he should sanctify his wife, make her feel like she's number one, and that a husband should protect his wife's purity. He washes and cleanses us. Number four, a husband should love his wife as his own body. And we go, for, we go a long way to take care of our body. We feed and nourish, we take care of it. The word nourish means to feed it and to bring it to maturity. Bring it to maturity. The idea is we are to care for the physical and emotional needs of our wives patiently to the point of a response from them. Our wives, we should expect, we should want them to respond to our nourishing them, our taking care of their physical and emotional needs. There's another word, and the word's, word is cherish. And cherish means to keep warm. It means to foster with tender care. It's a process. It's not an overnight happening. It's, it's something where I'm saying, Lord, uh, uh, I, or it's it, where I'm showing her continually over and over how much I care about her and how much I love her. The, the idea is give her everything she needs to make her feel secure and satisfied. Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. Nourish it and feed. He nourishes the church. He feeds the church. Nourish her and cherish her. You say, what, what, give me some details. This next list is just some details. So, so how do you do this? Well, maybe it's just your hands rubbing her tired feet. I, I, I was shocked after I got married because my wife said to me, David, could you rub my feet? To rub your feet? What is that all about? I thought, I thought, I never heard, I, I don't want anybody messing with my feet. And, and yet she said, rub my feet. I thought, man, uh, my wife's a little strange, but if that's what she wants, I'm going to rub her feet. And then she explained to me years later, she said, women have problems with their feet because they, our culture demands that they wear things that make them do this all the time. They're walking around like this all the time and, they, and then they put all sorts of weird shoes on their feet and, and then their feet are aching and they're trying to you know, go up. It's, and it's really uh, an amazing thing. And she explained it to me. I thought it was just her, but then I have three daughters and my daughters got to be teenagers. They were saying, Dad, would you rub my feet? And I thought, it's a, it's a gender thing. And so, uh, uh, but so, Rubber feet, it's, it's showing that you care about her needs. Your ear listening to her concerns about her friends and family. Oh, men are problem solvers, and men are people who want to get back to what they were doing in the first place. So when the wife comes and says, honey, I want to tell you about what's going on with Sue and, and, and Chad. And you say, okay, what? And, and, uh, and she starts telling you about it. She just wants you to listen. She doesn't want you to solve the problem. She just wants you to listen to him because she's concerned about him and she wants to talk to you about him and she may tell you about the same story three or four times and you can show her that you love her by listening to what she says about Susan and Chad and what's going on. And, and, and you might be thinking, tell me the bottom line so I can get back to the game. But that's what she doesn't want. She wants to know that you care about Susan and Chad and the truth of the matter is you don't. Uh, but you need to listen to her because she wants to voice her concerns for her family. She wants to con uh, voice her concerns and men will just 
my wife will say to me this, David, you're just saying to me, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. Uh, take care of the problem. And, and I, I need to learn. I, I'm continually learning. By the way, the things that I'm teaching, I have, to, I have to hear me say these all the time. I have a hard time with these things. But it's true. Listen, she needs to hear your prayers for her daily needs. I had a pastor of one of the largest churches in this country say to me, he said, he said, the hardest person I have to pray with and pray for is my wife. And you know why it is? Because we know that our wives know us better than anybody else in the world. They see all, they see all of our faults. They see everything. They see every wart that we have. They know everything about us. And so uh, you, you think, well, they're not caring if, if, if I pray for them or not. Oh, yeah, they do. Your wife wants to hear you pray. You don't have to be eloquent about your prayers. My wife will say, David, would you pray for the kids? We have a little granddaughter named Emma May, and, they have a, a, and she's about two years old, right, two? She's about two years old, and, and she, uh, we, they have a swimming pool out in their backyard. And just out of the blue, my wife will be thinking about Emma in the swimming pool, and she'll say, David, would you just pray for Emma that she won't fall in the swimming pool and she won't drown and cause somebody else to drown in the swimming pool? So I'd say, Lord, I just pray for Emma. Pray she won't drown in the swimming pool and nobody else will drown in the swimming pool. She'll say to me, hey, would you pray for Daisy and pray for freedom? They have, uh, my other uh, granddaughter, Daisy, lives in Biloxi, Mississippi, and they live out by a, by a busy road, and, and there's a dog named Freedom, and Freedom just is a crazy... Uh, fun dog and Daisy runs out in the street and she's afraid that Daisy's going to fall with freedom out in the street and they're both going to get killed and so she say pray for Daisy that she won't run out in the front street and so I pray for that uh, I pray every night and I'm not I'm by the way I'm not eloquent in my prayers there's nothing eloquent about me period um, in fact eloquent is probably one of the largest words that I use and I had to work on it and so uh uh, but there's nothing eloquent about the way I pray, nothing fancy. I just very simply pray. I pray at night. I'm, in, I'm tired just like you are. I pray, Lord, I pray for Anna. I pray for our children. I call them out by name, and I pray that for whatever specific things. She interrupts me when I'm praying. I say, I say and Lord, I pray, for, uh, I pray for Emma, and then she'll say, I pray that she don't fall in the pool. I, I pray that she won't fall in the pool. And, uh, and I think, why don't she just pray it? Uh, but uh, uh, the the... What, what her hearing me pray for her, then I pray for her, the, the pain or the, she like just hurt her neck recently, I pray, pray for her. And her hearing me pray is special. Uh, your wife wants to hear you pray for her. Uh, and so pray, pray for her. Just simple ways to let her know that you love her. Uh, your understanding when she, uh, or your help in taking care of your children. It's amazing. Isn't it amazing that when men are taking care of the children, they're babysitting? Um, we are, they are our children. Your help in taking care of your children, your understanding when she fails, and your assistance in taking care of your home. Your assistance in taking care of your home when she comes home. When you come home and you're, uh, and you're tired, you should be thinking about what you can do for her. You are there to serve her. A husband should love his wife as his own body. And then, number five, a husband should serve his wife. A husband should serve his wife. I, I've, for years, I've heard men say, you know, the husband is the head of the home. And I've heard men say, I'm the head of this house. Well, that's true. But when Jesus talks about the, being the head, he's talking about being the head servant. The head servant in the home. He is the head servant of the house. When you get to heaven, the Bible tells us that Jesus is going to, Jesus is, the, he, of course he's the head of, of, of heaven. He's in control of heaven. But he didn't come to serve, he, or to, to be served, he came to serve. In Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, the Bible says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served or be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He doesn't come, he doesn't, he's not going to come and, and take us all to heaven so we can fall down and, and serve him. We're going to worship him, but he's, the Bible tells us when we get there, 
He's going to serve us. Your wife will learn how to serve by watching your example. If your wife isn't a servant, it's because you're not. You need to understand that that's your responsibility. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the story, gives us a parable about the the groom and and the bride. And he says this, blessed are those whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching. Verily I say unto you that he shall gird himself, this is Jesus, and make them sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. What this passage indicates is that when we get to heaven, Jesus will serve us. Man, think about that. For the last 2,000 years, the Lord has been preparing a place for us. When he raptures us out, we immediately go to the judgment seat, which means the reward seat of Christ. He rewards us for the things that we did in our body. And then after he rewards us, he sits us down at the marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes, preacher, to where we are and serves us. Imagine what Peter felt like, because you're gonna feel that way when the Lord sits down and kneels before you to serve you. And the Bible says we're to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. I realized that several years ago, and I heard a preacher actually talk about this. I thought, man, I'm blowing this. Because when I get home, I expect her to be ready for me. I expect her to be having things done for me. I mean, I've been working all day long. I hope she has at least something cooking for me. And I realized, man, I'm supposed to come home ready to serve her. And I, I realized this. I there was, a, there was a Walmart, uh, two, two terrible things that were, were placed there by Satan on my way home from work. It was a Walmart, and then he came along and put a Krispy Kreme donut uh, shop there that had hot now, hot now, flash every time. So I was driving by, and I said to myself uh, on the way home, I said, um, when I see that Walmart, I'm going to use that as a reminder that my wife is at home and she needs me. And I gotta stop thinking about everybody else and everything else I need to get done. And I'm gonna, st- I'm gonna make that my marker that says, all right, start thinking about your wife and the kids and the fact that she needs you and you're expecting nothing when you get home except to serve. And what can you do to help her? And that's what you're here to do. Help with the children, help with the house, help with f- fixing dinner, whatever you need to do, you've gotta think about what, what can you do to serve her? Because if husbands, if you're going to love your wife the way Christ loved the church, it's not all about what she can do for you. It's all about what you can do for her. Man, what a change. What a difference in what our culture has taught us over the last many, many years. It's all about service. And we need to understand that. When When the Christian comes to a point where he recognizes that he's not here to be taken care of, but he's here to represent Jesus Christ as the head servant in heaven. We're here to represent Jesus Christ as servants here on this earth. And the number one person you're to serve is your wife. Man, it'll make a huge difference in your marriage. Husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it. He was a servant. He was a servant. Now, you say, preacher, could you get to the next point because I'm really tired of this point? You're not going to like this next point any more than you like that one. The next point is this, that a husband should take the blame. A husband should take the blame. We need to understand this, that the Bible says in verse 25 of this passage, it says that he gave himself for it. Jesus Christ gave himself. What does that mean? In 1 Peter, the Bible says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. God's word says that he took our sins, which means he took our blame. He took our blame. If Satan who knows about my life or, or, or the demons that know about my life were to go before God the Father 
and say, Dave Tice, you know what he did this time? Dave Tice, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. Here's what would happen. Jesus would say, oh wait, no, Father, that wasn't him, that was me. Jesus never, does not allow me to take the blame, the judgment at the white throne. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't allow me to take the blame for anything. He took my sin upon himself. Everything, every lie, every cheating thing, everything I ever did was placed upon Jesus. Jesus died for all the sins I've committed and all the sins I will ever commit. By the way, that's why it's absolutely impossible to lose your salvation. He paid for it all. He doesn't let you receive the blame for anything that you ever do. He takes full responsibility for what you have done. And he died to pay for all of that. Wow. It's a little different than what we do. Oh, preacher, you know, I'd have been here on time, but you know the way women are. I'd have been here, you know, I'd have been here early. You know, preacher, I would be serving in the church. I would be, I'd, you know what I would be doing, but I just can't. My wife won't let me. You know, you know, I just can't believe the way the kids are turning out. You know, the house is always, I'd have some people over, but the house is always a wreck. Well, buddy, why don't you fix it? Why don't you do something about it? You see, you, 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 God doesn't want you blaming your wife for why you don't serve and why you don't do or why you can't or why she spends all the money in the world. Well, here's the deal. God wants you to take the blame. Why? Because you're the head servant and you're responsible. God says, take the blame. Take the blame. I had a, a guy say to me one day, he said, he said uh, we're leaving. I said, why? He said, you, you don't ever see you, you don't think your wife does anything wrong, ever. You, you, you never say anything negative about your wife. I said, is that what you think? He said, yeah. I said, good. So glad. So you've never heard me ever say anything negative about my wife? Right, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, good, I'm so glad. Why? Because I don't want to be blaming my wife for, for what I don't do in life. Jesus took our blame. I'm the one responsible for my wife. I'm the ones responsible for my children. I'm the ones responsible for my home. I need to take the blame. A husband should never let his wife be blamed for anything. It's me. It's me. And we need to understand that. A husband should take the blame. <laughs> it's interesting. God's way of loving is so totally different from us. He loves us unconditionally. He says a husband should love his wife that way. A husband, he, he sanctifies us and we should sanctify our wives. A husband should protect his wife's purity. A husband should love his wife as his own body. A husband should serve his wife. And then a husband should take the blame. Lastly, a husband should adore his wife. A wife needs ad, ad, adoration. A man needs admiration, and a woman needs adoration. She needs to know that she's special to you. So easy to find fault with our spouses. John, John chapter 3 and verse 17 says this about Jesus. God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to save, not to condemn. He doesn't condemn us. You don't go into the presence of God and feel condemned. You go into the presence of God, and that's why it's so important you do that on a regular basis. You go into the presence of God and you feel acceptance. You feel love. You feel forgiveness. You know that. And all you have to do is say, yeah, I blew it again, God. And he totally and completely accepts you and forgives you. The Bible says if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He loves us unconditionally. He... he he, he, he adores us. In fact, Song of Solomon chapter 7 is an amazing passage. It describes, it's Solomon describing his wife from the top of his head, her head to the bottom of her toes. He describes her in detail. It's very graphic. I won't go into it, but I'm telling you, he adores this woman. 
And many theologians say that this is a picture of how Christ loves us. Well, then he adores us. Take care of her better than you take care of yourself. Repeat to her over and over, I love you, I love you. My mentor used to say that my wife has a 50-gallon uh, bucket that needs to be filled every single day with I love you, I love you, I love you. Your wife will not get tired of you saying I love you. Repeat it over and over. Tell her how great she is. Tell her how wonderful she is. Tell her she's, she's, why she's special as a mom, as a wife, as a grandma. If she's not a grandma, don't tell her she's a good grandma. Uh, as a friend, as a, as a servant, just tell her how wonderful she is and, and what she does and how wonderful she is in all those special ways. I love the story of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan left uh, cards and notes for his wife Nancy all over the place all the time. Uh, in fact, when he was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, he did that. When he was the governor of California, he did that. He had a ranch and he did. Every day, he left her special notes. You say, how do you know that? Because after he died, she published those notes. And uh, there's a book and she made, I don't know, probably millions of dollars off, off, of her, off of the love notes that he wrote to her. He was a very busy man. Yet he felt, he found, he, he, he found the time to write her posty notes, love cards, just little cards that said, I love you. Now, I'm going to say this, even though women have told me you shouldn't say this to my husband. Get her clothes that she looks good in. Now, I've had wives, and you don't have to do this, I have wives come up to me and say, please don't tell my husband to ever buy me anything to wear. Uh, but uh, what I'm saying is this, let her know you look, she looks good to you. Tell her how good she looks to you. Get her, uh, just let her know that you are attracted to her. Focus on what's attractive and not on what isn't attractive. I had a guy come into my office. He was only been married for two or three years. His wife had gained a little bit of weight. And uh, I, he was just complaining about her. And I said, uh, I said, listen, you married her just a few years ago. I said, because you loved her. What was it that you loved about her? What? Think about the things that you find attractive about her. He said, I don't find anything attractive about her. I thought, man, what an idiot. Because she was a very nice, sweet, uh, attractive person. But he couldn't find anything attractive about her. Find out what is attractive about her and, and let her know what's attractive to her. Uh, whisper a sweet word, uh, a, a soft word, a soft touch, or a pat or a wink. Let her know. Let her know. Make her feel special in private and in public. I was preaching one day after, uh, while, I, while I was preaching after church was over, I, I was finished. People were all mingling like you do here in the church. They were just all mingling in different areas. And it was a pretty crowded night that night. And I got off of the platform and I walked down. My wife was about three quarters of the way down this aisle. And I'm walking down the aisle, and I'm thinking nobody's going to notice this, just Anna and I. And I walked by her, and I looked at her, and I gave her a pat, where only a husband should pat his wife. And I gave her a little pat, and she looked up at me like that, and I smiled at her and winked at her. I thought nobody else noticed that, it's just me and my wife, right? So it's so... And, and, but there's a lady named Mrs. Silva has been coming to our church. We called her Mama Silva. She looked over and she said, I saw that. And uh, as soon as she said that, I, th I, I was a little embarrassed. And my wife looked and she, I said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, she said, oh, no, don't be sorry. Go tell Tony to do that. Uh, she wanted to have her husband express love to her. Uh, make, make her feel special in private and in public. And then find out what she likes and do it and get it for her. Find out what she likes. And you do that by asking questions, in, in inquiring, watching her life. Let her know how special she is to you. When I, when my mentor, again, his name was Sumner Wimp. He would always say, it's not Wimp, it's Wimp. Sumner Wimp. Uh, he was 76 years old. And uh, yeah, he, every year, would come out and do our missions conference for us in June, and then we would go out and get something to eat. Uh, his wife and my wife were sitting in the back seat of the car, and my wife, me and, my, and him were sitting up in the front seat of the car. We got out of the, we pulled into this restaurant area, and uh, we got out of the car, 
And uh, his wife and my wife were about, oh, probably about five feet in front of us where she could hear what, we, what, we, what he was about to say. And they start, they start walking, and he, he, he uh, says out loud so she can hear it. He said, hey, Dave, Dave. I said, what? He said, you ever see a pair of legs on a 76-year-old woman that looked that good? And, and, and so, I'm like, what do you say to that, you know? So uh, I said, uh, I said, well, no, and, and this is what she did. She said, stop it, stop it, which meant keep it up, buddy. I like that a lot. Your wife wants to know that you adore her. She needs that. Your wife yearns for security, and she gets that security through your sensitivity to her needs. Meet her needs and understand that that's the number one priority. Love your wife the way Christ loved the church. Men are self-seeking and self-serving, but we can learn. We can learn to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. And when we do, we'll see the right response. Father, I pray that you'll help us to take the truth that we've heard here, apply it to our lives. I pray you'll help us to be the kind of husbands and, Father, develop the right, the marriage that, that will bring glory and honor to you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.